to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today we'll be talking about Thelma and Louise with our great friend Jolie Darrow. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed, reporting to you from a car in a hotel parking lot in Jackson, Tennessee. (laughs) I'll be joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Marshall, momentarily. But first... We want to let you know that You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon and on Apple Plus podcast subscriptions. Your support is rewarded with bonus episodes. We just released a bonus episode about grief and a bunch of movie suggestions based on what we've been watching. Uh, We've gotten great feedback on that episode. We really appreciate it. We tried to be as honest as possible about what it's like to be humans who grieve. And I hope that you enjoyed it, if that's something that you have signed up for. Uh, Your support makes the show possible. We are able to uh, pay the folks who edit it, pay Carolyn who produces it. Uh, We're able to pay artists to make this thing. So thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for supporting the arts economy. We really, really appreciate you. You Are Good is also made with support by Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K, a commercial and creative video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, be sure to get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. And finally, we make a playlist to accompany each of our episodes. The playlist includes songs that we think about when we think about this conversation. It includes songs that we think about when we think about the movie. It's linked in the show notes. You can uh, listen to it while you're driving to the grocery store. You can listen to it uh, while you're washing your dishes. Hopefully you enjoy it. And if not, uh, there'll be one next week. (laughs) So Thelma and Louise, it is a, this is straight out of Wikipedia. This is where I'm getting this description, just so you know. But Thelma and Louise is a 1991 American feminist female buddy road crime comedy drama film directed by Ridley Scott and written by Callie Corey. It stars Susan Sarandon as Louise and Gina Davis as Thelma, two friends who embark on a road trip that ends up in unforeseen circumstances. That's that's an interesting way to put that. If you know anything about this movie, this movie requires a pretty substantial trigger warning for uh, sexual assault, a pretty intense scene that happens in the movie, and for it being a running theme that comes up in conversation throughout this movie. I just want you to know that that's coming. If you're like me, maybe you thought you saw this, or maybe you saw pieces of it and reverse engineered it, and then you were surprised, or you will be surprised if you revisit it to see sort of what is in the movie. So I just want you to know that that is in there if that is something that you're uh, uh, trying to avoid by way of your media consumption. But our conversation, you know, we try to be as gentle and thoughtful as possible with regard to uh, talking about that stuff. So just know that that is here. One last thing before we begin. This episode is made possible with support from Cornbread Hemp. Cornbread Hemp is a CBD company based in Kentucky. Their products are flower only, full spectrum. That means no seeds or stems. You know what it's like. You don't want seeds or stems in your hemp-based products. And these do not have that. These are flower only. They're not using byproducts in order to uh, to puff things up. USDA certified organic. Most products from Cornbread Hemp are vegan friendly, including CBD oils and gummies. It's family owned and crowdfunded. All products are made in Kentucky. 
right here in uh, the United States, right around where I'm at right now. Cornbread Hemp's products are certified by independent labs with reports published right on their website at cornbreadhemp.com in case you're looking for any of that information. So if you want to order anything from Cornbread Hemp, go to cornbreadhemp.com and use the code YOUARGOOD for 25% off your order. Again, cornbreadhemp.com, use the code you are good for 25% off your order. All right. I guess without further ado, I don't have any like quippy things to say about Thelma and Louise outside of the fact that it's great. <laughs> I'm very excited to share this conversation with you. Hey, thanks for being here. Let us know how you're doing. We're on social media on Instagram and on Twitter at youaregoodpod. Uh, speaking of which, you, my friend, are good. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. I don't know. Is there a cute setup for this movie? Like, what would the cute setup be? <laughs> here's Well, here's a thought that I had. Because, like, this, we're talking about Thelma and Louise, which I and many other people first encountered the ending of Thelma and Louise in the ending of Wayne's World, where there's a little comedy bit where they're like, let's do the Thelma mm. and Louise ending. And then... As a child, you learned that the Thelma and Louise <laughs> ending means holding hands with your best friend and then driving a cool car into the Grand Canyon to your inevitable death. And I feel like some kind of studio person watched a cut of this movie. And I imagine this person being kind of like Gary Marshall in Soap Dish, who's like, here are two words I like, peppy and cheap. And... <laughs> saw like the rough cut of this movie and was like we need an upbeat ending and that the director ridley scott was like well we can't we're not reshooting stuff and he was like who said reshoots <laughs> and then they just put a glenn fry song in the end credits that's like super upbeat in this like very generic like mall adult contemporary kind of a way um so i feel like the movie was a little bit confused about what vibe you were able to walk out of the theater with. Can't wait to talk about it. But first, uh, uh, before you give a recap of what Thelma and Louise is, we have a special guest. Special guest, please reveal yourself and your relationship to this movie. Hello, I'm Jolie Darrow. I am a comedian, writer, producer. Uh, I uh, do a bunch of weird video game content and then also some not video game content. Um, yeah, that's a, that's like all you really need to know. And I ran, I ran into you, I think probably initially on TikTok, you make wonderfully surreal, slightly awkward TikToks that I really enjoyed. And we've, we've, uh, uh, since become friends and stayed in touch. It's very nice. Yeah. TikTok is awesome. And, uh, I like to think of myself as the first non-Gen Zer to say so. <laughs> and it turns out as I learned via Twitter in exchanges, uh, there is that this is your favorite movie question mark. It, it is. It is very much my favorite movie. It is not a perfect movie, but it's an incredible movie. <laughs> my favorite movie is Newsies, which is a perfect movie. Yeah. 
for the record. <laughs> okay, I'll say that Newsies is a perfect movie uh, for like sixty percent of it, and yes. then they then then the, the ending is just the parts of it without plot. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I like. I actually, I really like, and will adopt the description. This is not a perfect movie, but it's an incredible movie. Like, I think that that's. I think that that's a great way to describe a lot of the movies we cover. So before we get into its perfection and anti-perfection and uh, uh, everything in between, Sarah Marshall, what is Thelma and Louise and what's it about? I'm so excited to tell you. I would also recommend the aphorism, it's not a perfect movie, but it is Newsies. But anyway. (laughs) Okay. So Thelma and Louise came out in the year of our Lord, 1991. And it stars Gina Davis as Thelma and Susan Sarandon as Louise, who live in Arkansas. Thelma is a housewife who lives with um, her husband, Daryl, who is played by an actor who I will always think of as the guy who hosts the show in Quiz Show. (laughs) Okay, so yes, guy from Quiz Show. So she's married to this real shithead named Daryl. And she wants to go away for a weekend vacation to the mountains with Louise, who is going to take her to a cabin, which in a wonderful little detail, the day manager of the diner where she works is about to lose it to his wife in the divorce, his ex-wife. So he's letting all of his coworkers stay there before he has to turn it over. Yeah, that's a pretty cool. That's a, I, I love that arrangement. <laughs> it's a very rich screenplay, I think. And Thelma is going to ask Daryl if she can go away for the weekend, but in the end, she just doesn't ask him, brings a ton of stuff because she's worried about various contingencies, like what if there's an escape psycho and they need a lantern? Then they head out to the mountains. I'm curious about which mountains these are. They're just the majestic Middle (laughs) America mountains. (laughs) So somewhere out there and there's fishing to be done. And so they stop at a like cowboy bar which 80s movies lead me to believe there were a lot of in the 80s called the silver bullet i mean i guess there are a lot still alex because like i mean are you are there a lot of cowboy bars in nashville uh well not it's not since nashville became for only the rich but um the yeah this is certainly a mm-hmm. style of bar that to your point is is over, was over portrayed throughout the eighties, but like I I've, I've certainly run into these bars when driving across the country, although less like a little less synchronized hmm. dancing. But this is the like the the um well line dancing has never been as big as it was in nineteen ninety one. I bet <laughs> no no no. This is the this is the um it's not quite the roadhouse bar because it's not that raucous, but like this is that style of style of spot. Line dancing was big. Also, square dancing was big. Growing up in New Jersey in the 1990s, yeah, we had to learn, every child had to learn square dancing, which is uh, kooky. And it turns out there, that was part of a white supremacist plot. We'll link it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Led by Henry Ford, obviously. I imagine that these bars are uh, proliferate 20 miles outside of Nashville. Well, also speaking of TikTok, that is something I'll come across sometimes. Like if I'm scrolling through lives, there there is definitely an audience for people watching these types of bars exist out in the world. That's amazing. Fascinating. <laughs> I think it's like, you know what we need? I'm going to start. I'm not going to do this, but I'm going to start in this conversation. I would love to do this. A like quarterly magazine called TV Guide. 
And it's just about what people watch because nobody knows what anybody else watches. We all have our own little TV thing that we've invented. You talk to anyone my age about like DuckTales, like everyone has a base reference for DuckTales because DuckTales was just one of the only pieces of media available. DuckTales, woo! And you can relate about the song. You can relate about things that happen and being like, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine now, like being a kid now and being at 40 and being like, did you watch the TikTok lives from um square from square dance halls and people will be like no i don't even believe that that existed like i don't know how you will <laughs> r- relate to people based on this like micro niche stuff but w- we'll see we'll only be united by mega memes we- we'll all be like hey remember Shalissa? <laughs> remember the mega meme <laughs> from vine even even vine seems quaint now <laughs> i know yeah so speaking of Thelma and louise you guys okay so they're at a cowboy bar Thelma is like, oh, this is fun. I never get to have fun. This is awesome. So the gals have drinks. And then immediately this guy Harlan comes over, who based on the way the waitress is talking to and about him, the waitress is like such a great character. I love this character. She's an OG. The way Harlan is coming on to Thelma and the way the waitress is looking at him, we know he's kind of like a pest at this establishment. Mm. He's like a lamprey at the very least. And so he dances with Thelma, she drinks a bunch, and then she goes out of the bar into the parking lot to throw up, which he naturally like seizes as a moment to start having sex with her, because I know what I'm in the mood for after vomiting. And she says no. I, I think we probably get like 45 seconds of what feels like it's about to become a very violent rape scene. It's a brutal scene. It's horrible. In terms of film and and TV, even like one of the more what I can imagine uh, realistic portrayals in the sense of I I think sometimes in television and movies like I recently was rewatching me and my partner have been rewatching Sopranos. Mm-hmm. And there's I don't want to spoil anything, but there is a, 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 a portrayed sexual violence in that movie i mean there's several or the tv show there's several but um a a very specific one that happens to a specific character again trying to be vague it feels real the fear and intensity of it but the way that uh the episode kind of gets into it and like how it starts just feels a little bit like fear baiting in a sense where it's like you could she's in a, a an empty parking garage and it's like you don't know where predators are lurking, which is true. But generally it happens more often, you know, at a bar where you're a little drunk and there's no one around to hear you. Like, I think this movie just does a really good job of showing how like, yeah, she was drinking and she's probably not in the best position to be able to say no and defend herself. Um, but even when she does very clearly, which doesn't always happen, it's ignored and uh, escalates and and the the violence sort of feeds off of uh, each other. Yeah, there's so many directions to go in based on this, and then we will go in more of them later. But one of the things that I feel like this scene illustrates is like because the perennial question when someone doesn't fight back in a, a rape or a sexual assault situation is like, why didn't you fight back? And this movie is like, well, yeah, if you do that, then it'll escalate it, and then like men don't actually like being hit. It turns out. And they're probably stronger than you, or at least a lot more used to expressing themselves this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, you know, we get 
the full effect of feeling the like dread and horror of what is inevitably going to happen. And then Louise shows up and she has a gun because Thelma brought along the gun that Daryl got her because she's alone at the house a lot while he's having affairs. And she's like holding it like an earthworm. (laughs) Um, And so Louise shows up. She like holds the gun to Harlan's head. She gets him to release Thelma. They're walking away. And I believe his words are, I should have gone ahead and fucked her. And then Louise turns and and I think she this is the part where she says, like, when a woman's crying like that, she's not having a good time. And Harlan says, suck my cock. And then Louise blows him away. And it's like, is there anyone out there? Maybe some men. I don't know. But is there anyone who's like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) He had his good years ahead of him. Or like that was uncalled for. I don't understand how a person could lose their composure in a moment like that. It's just like, how could you not? Like, you've got a gun. It's right there. Uh Uh-huh. Boy, oh boy, do I have the movie review for you. Ah. (laughs) I sent this to Alex earlier. Um, so, So the title of this article is As a Feminist Film, Thelma and Louise Fails Miserably, which... Oh, oh, mama. But basically, one of the things that the author of this review goes on to talk about is the way that Thelma doesn't even shoot him during the rape. It's after the fact when he says mean things to her. That's the way this is portrayed. And it's just it's really disturbing to read. And it's like, yeah, how can anyone say that it wasn't justified is what you're saying. And it's well, you know, men, men will always find a way to. Well, right. And it's also I mean, the legal standards for self-defense are so interesting. And I think like the like legal burden that a case like this would have to meet, which is why Louise, I think, correctly ascertains right after the fact that they're like probably fucked is were you did you like truly believe that you were in like imminent danger of like sexual assault or, you know, being in, being killed, that your life was in danger and like this wouldn't meet that burden. But I feel like it would meet the like much more human burden of like, could you have not done that? Like, seriously? <laughs> I'm going to read the exact quote because it's I didn't do it justice. Okay, so he says, in other words, one of the heroes of the movie commits a completely unjustified murder and the other helps her flee justice. There's a lot of discussion about how society will never believe it was self-defense because Thelma and Harlan had been flirting in front of hundreds of people. But A, it really wasn't self-defense. And B, the cop, Harvey Keitel on the case, while pleading with the pair to turn themselves in so he can help, makes it clear that the friends could get away with murder by falsely claiming the shooting was the only way to stop the rape. There's supporting evidence. While attempting rape, Harlan had struck Thelma hard enough to leave marks. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's not so much you can say. I'm imagining that the writer of this is Stephen Tobolowski's character in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So to sum up, she shoots Harlan dead. Louise gets them back on the road. Thelma is like, let's go to the police. And Louise is like, the police will never like the law won't understand like we don't live in that kind of a world where where anyone would understand what happened 
And also like, yeah, you were seen dancing with him all night. So nobody would believe that it was an attempted rape. This is when we also begin to understand through sort of oblique references that like something terrible happened to Louise in Texas Mm. um, and that it was in some way similar to what was happening or going to happen in that parking lot. And so they decide to go on the run and Louise decides that she needs to get the $6,700 she has in savings and she's going to have it wired to her by dun 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 her boyfriend, Michael Madsen. <laughs> it's a really interesting bouquet of men in this movie. <laughs> it really is. And so she gets in touch with Michael Madsen. He says he's going to wire the money to her at a place in Oklahoma City. And so they have to get there. Meanwhile, they spot a handsome hitchhiker played by Brad Pitt, who Thelma takes a shining to because Thelma is like, has only been with Daryl since she was 14. And so she's like, really like looking for some extracurricular activities and also has singularly disastrous taste in men, (laughs) I would say. (laughs) (laughs) So they don't pick up Brad Pitt at first, and then they do decide to give him a ride because they see him again on the way to Oklahoma City. I mean, the progression of of sort of how things change psychologically is really interesting because they go through like, this intense kind of immediate trauma after the fact of the parking lot. And then things are like kind of lighthearted for a while. They're on the road. Um, They're going to get their $6,700 and go to Mexico. No one's really looking for them. Um, Although we've seen Harvey Keitel examine the crime scene because when you want to cast an Arkansas cop, who do you think of? But Harvey Keitel. Obviously, Harvey Keitel. Weren't you a little surprised that Steve Buscemi wasn't in this movie, considering how many Tarantino men are in this movie? Oh, that's a great point. Wow. This came out a year before Reservoir Dogs, so Tarantino hasn't even made a movie yet. But this movie is just Tarantino men. Right. But still. (laughs) I think also, I don't know about the men, but I know the casting of Thelma and Louise changed a ton. Who was it? Uh, Goldie Hawn was matched with Meryl Streep, I think. Huh. And then I think that was the second iteration. But the first iteration, I believe, was I was I was Jodie Foster Mm -hmm. and Michelle Pfeiffer. Wow. Very into that. Very into that as well. These are I, I, you know, if I had the keys to the multiverse, um, like Dr. Strange or whoever, (laughs) I would just go see different versions of movies. I would go to the multiverses where like Michelle Pfeiffer and Jodie Foster were in Thelma and Louise and I would have an afternoon there. (laughs) So they get to Oklahoma City. Louise, inexplicably, this is my only screenwriting note, leaves the money with Thelma. (laughs) She's like, here's $6,700 in cash. You're notoriously with it. Yeah, you make great decisions. (laughs) Your great decisions have gotten us this far. Please take all the money we have in the world. You know, when you're just, you got like horny goggles on. Like, I think she just wanted to get it on with Jimmy. And like, everybody just wants to get laid. Speaking of her leaving that money, there is like, I, what I do like is like the most likable guy in this movie is Jimmy, and he's not even that likable. Yeah. Mm hmm. In my mind, like in the past, I think I've always thought of Jimmy as the good guy. He's like the, you know, he is the hero that comes with the money and he doesn't uh, go to the cops and he's just ready to uh, take care of them in a sense. At least that's how I used to see it. And then upon rewatch, I was like, 
oh, no, he's just also trying to manipulate the situation to get what he mm. wants. He re- he sees Louise slipping away from him and he comes in with, you know, the white armor and the engagement ring. And he's like, I'm ready. I'm ready for it. The second he knows that she's kind of out of the picture. Uh, and then when she doesn't react the way he wants her to, he starts having a man tantrum. <laughs> He has the least area in which to, like, do something bad. Like, the men in this movie are either bad or sort of ineffective. Right, or the opportunity to be bad (laughs) hasn't clearly presented itself yet. (laughs) So Jimmy shows up with the money. Thelma spends the night in her motel with JD, who initially left and then showed back up. So an observation I had about this movie for the first time watching it for this is that this is like an incredibly wet movie. Yes, this is the last this is the last (laughs) year of wet movies, Sarah. Is it? And I, I truly, I truly, truly believe this is that like 91 was the last year of Dewey. Um, you could see a fly on screen. I think like once hmm. like 92 and like the like digital and in-studio revolution happens, unless you're watching like a B movie or unless you're watching a direct to um, VHS release mm-hmm. at, the, at that time, you do not see this kind of sweat maybe in again like maybe in no not even in like a tarantino movie like you just don't see it this is the last glorious year of sweaty buggy uncomfortable sandy uh that kind of movie (laughs) dusty i think you're right yeah even gladiator like gladiator should be sweaty and sandy it's neither of those things people in 90s (laughs) movies were bone dry (laughs) bone dry (laughs) (laughs) Well, I also feel like ninety the nineties is when sort of the movie for kids started appearing as well. Like there, it became less. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think it became less about like ubiquitous films for everyone. And the nineties brought sort of the kids specific film. Yeah, like segmented. Yeah. Yeah, and this movie, this is a movie where, in many ways, the fact of its existence is incredible. Totally. But also the fact that it's raining the entire time. And as I'm saying <laughs> that, I'm like, wait a minute. Ridley Scott, Blade Runner. And also, he loves to make California, I know this isn't California, but like LA and Blade Runner, you know, the Southwest and this just like wet. It's just pouring. Yeah, definitely. Famously what it does. <laughs> and it's, it's yeah, and we were talking about that on our drive, Sarah, the other day was we were talking about yes. how we were talking about how this how like movie technology plays into how places are represented. And like one of those is you were mm. talking about how what what was your observation about Oregon and how it's portrayed? Oh, that it's portrayed as both too wet and too sunny, where like right, typ- right, right. the most typical weather in Oregon is just kind of like overcast and not much happening or like a little bit of a drizzle. But if you have a movie set in Portland, it tends to be either like blue sky or like pouring, which is, are the two rarer things. <laughs> Which is so bizarre because overcast is like the ideal condition to film in. (laughs) That's what I've heard. Exactly what I was saying is I was like, I think the reason why it's never portrayed as wet enough is like, unless you are Ridley Scott and you're like, you know what? I'd love a challenge. I would love an unnecessary challenge in this. You're avoiding rain at all costs because it's just another dynamic to the production you do not want to engage. So that's so funny. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, my God. Mm hmm. JD, Brad Pitt's character, spends the night with Thelma. They appear, they clearly have fantastic sex. Um, and he also confesses to her that he has broken his probation because he's a robber. And she says, so you're like a real live outlaw. 
And he shows her how he robs convenience stores, which is this very kind of like classic, you know, outlaw gentleman robber kind of like. I think he says, like, I always thought when handled correctly, armed robbery doesn't have to be an entirely unpleasant experience. (laughs) And a really fascinating thing happens with wardrobe in this movie, obviously, in many ways. But one thing I love is that Thelma starts out wearing a lot of kind of like house dresses and frills and very kind of like, Mm. I don't know, Arkansas feminine, I guess. And then after she gets properly railed by JD, it seems like he actually like I think my theory is that his dick was big enough to like reach her factory reset button. (laughs) And then so she comes out wearing like a Canadian tuxedo. She's got like a denim shirt tucked into like jeans with like this absolute like the most Gina Davis shouldn't have should have gotten a special Oscar just for that. Like I've just been fucked properly performance, (laughs) which her character only gets to enjoy for like seven minutes because then they find out that uh all the that jd took the money obviously i i think that he rationalized this to himself as like i've become a rent boy and this is what i charge mm-hmm. <laughs> it's six thousand dollars <laughs> plus ten percent is gratuity <laughs> <laughs> so they're fucked and so they get on the road they don't know what they're gonna do as thelma later puts it she says i something has crossed over in me mm-hmm. and it's that she's like she's kind of like taken jd's like outlawness and like put it on like a shirt and she's the outlaw now so they like stop at a, ga- a truck stop or something she goes in she robs the gas station she gets at least enough money for them to keep going and also some little bottles of wild turkey Meanwhile, the FBI has come in to help Harvey Keitel with the investigation. And so Stephen Tobolowsky is on the job. And we also have this whole wonderful side thing happening where Daryl's house has been taken over by G-men who all want to watch Cary Grant movies. (laughs) They things just kind of like naturally continue to escalate because like, you know, once you've committed a robbery, it gets easier to conceive of other crimes. They get pulled over for speeding. Um, because Louise was driving like 110 after Thelma brought up what happened in Texas. And Louise is like, I'm not going to talk about it. And then had to drive 110 like you do. I think it's fine to drive 110 there if nowhere else. And get pulled over by a traffic cop who's like standing in for all traffic cops. He's like, what if all traffic cops are just clones? <laughs> like, And he's just the original traffic cop. So he is like, ma'am, you're in a lot of trouble. And so Thelma comes, holds him at gunpoint. He immediately starts sobbing. She like has him get into the trunk of his car. Don't worry. She shoots air holes in. And then he's rescued by like the coolest side character in any movie, a bicyclist who's like bicycling through. He's not rescued by him. Oh, yeah. He Well, it's I, yeah, I guess I always assumed that like after they cut away. Yeah. OK, maybe he's just stuck there forever. That guy, that cop died <laughs> in the trunk and I'm glad. Oh, OK. Fuck him. Great. He he probably assessed the situation was like, I don't win anything yeah. by helping him. I can only be harmed. <laughs> yeah, I'm a black cyclist yeah. in the middle of nowhere. I'm not going to liberate a cop. You know, whatever you want to happen happens. <laughs> Maybe he dies in there. <laughs> Maybe an egg truck comes by or something. <laughs> anyway, egg truck. so they're like, they're just, they're bandits now. 
And Thelma says my favorite line, which is like, you got a wife and kids? And he's like, yeah. And she's like, be real sweet to them, especially your wife. My husband wasn't sweet to me. And look how I turned out. Yeah, that's so good. Then they (laughs) have an encounter with this trucker who has been, who they've run into several times and who's just like, how would you describe the trucker? Lascivious. Lascivious. Yeah. Is it a lascivious trucker? He's doing a lot of. A lot of these. Doing a lot of tongue tongue proposition. Which, tongue you know, thrusting. very, very progressive of him to suggest that he's going to go straight to oral. That's very kind, but it is uh, unwelcome. As far <laughs> as we know, there's only two cars on these roads. And one is this trucker <laughs> and one is these women and then oh, this police officer. That's it. These are the only cars on the we road. You know, freeways just suck up all the, all the traffic. It's days of pursuit. <laughs> but it's all right it's a fantasy a little bit this movie pairs well with badlands yeah and so they like have a standoff with him where they shoot up his truck and it explodes is there like another crime that i'm missing i feel like there's like one more crime in there i'm pretty sure that's the i'm pretty sure that's the last of the that and the cop are the last are the last of the crimes before they're like all right yeah and then you know once you blow up a tanker truck you do draw a lot of attention to yourself. And so the cop, <laughs> like all the coppers converge and they're chasing them down. And the finale is they end up at the Grand Canyon. Louise has throughout been having these short phone calls with Harvey Keitel, who comes across as like the reasonable sort of man of the law within all this, but who ultimately is like, yeah, I can't really promise you anything. Mm -hmm. And you are kind of screwed, but like, isn't it better to give yourself up rather than dying? And what he's aware of is that like everybody else is escalating this into a situation where like they're going to be killed one way or another because like that's what happens. Yeah, he's the most fantastic creature in this movie. And by fantastic, I mean made of fantasy, which is, yes. yeah, he's like, we are accelerating the situation. We need to take responsibility about what we are driving mm-hmm. them to do. And it's like, yeah, fucking right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's the well, only. Well, I mean, it is realistic that out of like hundreds of cops, by the end, he's the only person to think that way. Precisely, <laughs> and the only person to think that way who has no power to do anything about it as well, which is really yes. interesting. Right? Yeah, like uh, kind of like Doctor Cox in Set It Off. Yes, 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 yes. Beautiful, beautiful callback to three months ago. And yeah, they have the stand up as predicted. It you know escalates because if you're being, I mean the. Last 10 minutes of this movie are like the Blues Brothers, just like giant rectangular cars tumbling in loop de loops. <laughs> and ultimately, Thelma is like, let's not get caught. Let's keep going. And the girls kiss and hold hands and drive into the Grand Canyon. And then they play a very uplifting Glenn Fry song. And I have so many feelings about this movie and about the sort of like, I think there is so much weird uplift within it but at the ending as you know no longer a teen all i can think of is like the specifics of driving your car into the grand canyon and and the maiming and so forth and what if it doesn't explode immediately and the pain and the dismemberment and the crushing of limbs Mm -hmm. so i'll just end there my first watch of this i actually somehow like i knew the iconic last scene but like i didn't put two and two together that that was going to happen so it did come as a, a complete uh shock to me and there was definitely the moment of uh the the first uh watch of this where i was like 
maybe they make it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe the car goes off the cliff because you don't see it crash. So you never know. You never know. <laughs> I mean, they did the, the, a Simpsons parody of this where I think, I don't know if this was actually a parody of this. I think it was, but where like Homer was doing like Daredevil Homer. And he did an evil can evil thing and then fell straight into the canyon. But then it was so full of garbage from the like landfill that he was fine. <laughs> I think that's what happened. I might be combining so two. There was definitely a garbage canyon joke. And we don't know that this isn't a garbagey part of the Grand Canyon. So there. It's true. I can't think of another movie like this. It feels like it was snuck through yep. yeah. the system and it feels like they were like they were like Ridley wants to make it. Ridley can do whatever the fuck he wants. Like mm-hmm. we'll just not even read the script. And this is all happening also in Clarence Thomas times. Yeah. I just before this conversation listened to the Bechdel cast episode about mm. this, which they recorded five years ago and they were mm. remarking on how nothing has gotten better. And then in between that has been the past five mm-hmm. years. Where arguably things have gotten worse. Oh, so much worse. Yes. And so for the people who saw this for the first time at the time, I can't imagine kind of what the response was outside of, I know that I've read many of the reviews and they're just, they're kind of predictable and how people would have responded to it. But like, <laughs> what is happening in this movie? And like, why is it so remarkable? Like, why does it still feel as refreshing as it does uh, for any of its faults? To, it, this movie is truly a miracle to me. Like it, it really is. And actually, so I, I saw this movie. I just graduated from college. I wanted to get into TV and, and movie writing. And I did the thing that all uh, young people, young broke people living in the Philadelphia suburbs do when they're trying to do that from the Philadelphia suburbs, which is I, A, took an improv class and B read a screen, how to write a screenplay book. And in the screenplay hmm. book, they covered a couple different movies. Um, Thelma and Louise being one of them. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I saw this movie. It was again in a, a screenplay book and, uh, just talking about really amazing screenplays. And I remember watching it and just being absolutely floored. I could not believe I hadn't seen that this movie before and the other interesting thing to me about it is recently a friend of mine who is uh currently writing a screenplay texted me asking for basically suggestions on what he could use as a reference for like his log line and he asked you know what are other what are some female buddy comedies what are some female protagonists who are featured in buddy comedies And they do exist for teenagers. Hmm. Anytime there is a comedy featuring women, generally, it's set in either in high school or takes place in like the world of high school. So like Romeo and Michelle's High School Hmm. Reunion is an amazing movie about adults. But I just could not think. There's like Girls Trip now and there's Bridesmaids, but Bridesmaids is not really about the female friendships. I mean, it kind of is, but it is also a romantic comedy. Yeah, it's like about one of them for like as like a key element. And then even like now and then it's like, I think we talked about this at the time, like it's allowed to be about 35 year old women because it depicts them mainly as 12 year olds. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Children. 
Mm-hmm. We end not that this is a comedy, but like it's got comedic elements. But it's got laughs. Yeah, for sure. And so I think that is probably why I just gravitated to it so hard because, you know, again, I just graduated college. I'm like really saw like what could potentially be a, a version of my future uh, without the murder and the, the bank robbery. But like, you know, the a depiction of what adults with friends look like in a way that, again, I, I just really, other than maybe like beaches, right. <laughs> beaches is the only one that comes to mind. Yeah, sure. Yeah, a league of their own. Steel Magnolias maybe, but that's like rot and over yeah. also. Yeah. But like, but again, it's like the fact that we're like struggling with this at all. Like, yeah, there's a real scarcity and we're culling from like many, many decades too. Mm-hmm. And genres. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no like, there's no office space, but with women, there's mm. no like fight club, but with women, there's no, um, there, there's a, hey, Hollywood producers, listen up. I got the, the pitch for you. Just take any movie and put women in it, but like change it a little bit. And there and you also, go. <laughs> if it has an established male fandom, then they'll lose their mind for years and you'll have guaranteed cultural relevancy. So that's something. To me, it doesn't feel like like take a regular genre movie and put women in it because every one of the dynamics that they're up against is like a direct one for one, not even symbolic assault on, on, Mm -hmm. on patriarchal violence. Yeah. I could see them being like, we're going to, we're to your point, like we're going to make a buddy cop movie in like the heat. And then that movie kind of gets to, you know, maybe there's like a smart talking asshole at the precinct who like doesn't like women very much. He's put in their place. And like, that's the only place for that. Like this movie start to finish is like the reason these Mm -hmm. women's Mm -hmm. lives are bad going into their backstory even is is patriarchal and and, uh, violence, sexual violence, like all of these different things. And they kind of they're given like a list one by one of of elements to yeah. uh, to confront in various scenes and take out in very satisfying ways. And again, it almost feels to me like the only way that this could happen is through the fuckery of being like of not fuckery as if it were bad, but through like being like we got Ridley. Right. I don't think anyone read Kelly Corey's script and we're like, yeah, let's make sure this gets made. It really feels like it's like Ridley wants to do it. So let's <laughs> let's make it happen. She was going to direct it also originally, really? which, you know, it, it, it's interesting to think about because it, it's to think about what maybe like a, a woman's touch on it would have been. However, science didn't learn women were capable of directing movies until Catherine Bigelow won an Oscar for The Hurt Locker yeah. and then it became established as fact. <laughs> you know, as a woman, it is quite faithful to my experience in a lot of ways, uh, you know, robbing banks and murdering um, as fe- with female <laughs> friendships, as someone who has had the same best friend since I was five years old, like, their relationship feels very real and earned and um it's not sugar-coated. It's not. And I also, something else I love is how they're sarcastic with each other. Mm-hmm. That might be something in the zeitgeist that like people assume is a real thing that women just have these like very uh, superficial relationships that they're not talking about men. They're just talking about shopping. I I don't know, but it's, yeah, there's just something amazing about it. I think media also equates female like close friendships and close relationships with like murder. Like either you kill the woman you love or you kill someone together. So there's a real fear there. 
I, it's not murder. At the very most, it's manslaughter, okay? <laughs> yeah. Sarah, what, how does this strike you? Like, how do you describe what this is and how do you, and, and what were the things that uh, tickled your fancy? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Great question. So I saw this for the first time when I was 13 with my best friend and her mom, who was like a counselor or something. And I was like, what a depressing movie. The world is so scary. Oh my God, I hope it's not that scary out there. And I remember the mom being like, this movie glorifies suicide. And I was like, oh, I wouldn't, um, I didn't see it that way, but okay. And then I watched it again, the whole thing through uh, a handful of years ago. And that was when I really like connected with it. Because obviously at that point, I was like, the world is so scary. It 100% is. And like, I'm building off of that. <laughs> like, then everything else the movie has to say was what I was focused on. And what I, what I love most in this movie, A, is just how beautiful it is. This is a beautiful movie. And I think that there's also something special about having a movie that showcases women, women's performances. A relationship between women and also like the essential premise that like America is so hostile toward women that you have to either like numb yourself to it or go on some kind of a collision course with the law. <laughs> right. Like to be an unrestrained woman is to become an outlaw. Yes. You know, to have it not just be like, oh, let's give someone two million dollars and like let them do a little, you know, shoot it on video like this <laughs> like this is such such a beautiful movie and also like such a western which and this feels to me not like a western with women inserted into it but a western made fundamentally about women which is like which the genre is so receptive to because the whole you know the concept of the outlaw and how mm -hmm. Thelma thinks it's so cool that JD is a real outlaw and then she becomes so much more of an outlaw than he is. Um, and just the scene where, you know, they're very close to the end and Thelma's saying, like, I don't want to go back. Something's crossed over in me. And she says, like, if I went back to the way my life was before, like, I wouldn't survive. And there's this sense, I think, that, like, they both are, like, truly alive for the first time ever. Yeah, my, minus the sweetness, uh, and there there's a lot of sweetness in this movie that derives from their their friendship. And I don't I don't say sweetness in a in a derogatory way. I think in a way that's like that uh, you connect with. Sweetness is a wonderful thing. Without sweetness, there would be no desserts. Come on, yeah. Then <laughs> <laughs> speaking of Catherine Bigelow, this movie feels a lot like Near Dark to me. Oh yeah, yeah. It feels so much like that or like no country for old men later but like that like uh but with a, a much different thesis but yeah it feels a lot like near dark it's like a cross between no country for old men and how the west was fun <laughs> <laughs> it just feels so anachronistic i think it was shot in panavision which i'm sure a lot of things were at the time but just the sort of absolutely if it were made a few decades earlier it would have been made in cinemascope Yes, but it's taken all the tools of telling a particular sort of male hero's journey mm -hmm. and has said, like, what if the monster were the whole of patriarchy? And what if there was not a singular hero, but it was two women who are, develop a friendship over the course of this and in developing that friendship make space 
you know, in a Trotsky, you know, Trotsky-esque way, preserving that space through hostility, actually had enough time to feel what it's like to be themselves fully. And then uh, we see what that looks like. Yeah. This time around, I was so, you know, in the year 2022, I was so hyper aware of the police presence throughout the whole thing. And I remember reading an article. I wish I knew anything about like <laughs> what publication or, or what, where I came across it. But I do remember reading an article in 2020 that was talking about, I think it was like relating uh, Get Out to Thelma and Louise in certain ways. Mm. And just because mm. I remember when I first watched the movie being like, yeah, why didn't they go to the police? Why didn't they? Like they could have probably they would have faced a lot less consequences than they ultimately wound up facing, which is death. I think we were so, you know, white Americans were so brainwashed as a society for a very long time mm -hmm. to think, the cops could help you in any <laughs> tangible way uh, and, and wanted you to succeed and wanted you to wanted to be the, the Harvey Keitel's of the movie and, and make sure things didn't escalate. I remember bringing up Thelma and Louise talking about how that was one of maybe the first movies that ever really showed the ways women had to navigate in a world where they weren't going to be believed by police is something that you know, black folks have had to deal with uh, forever. And I have been uh, uh, very keenly aware of that fact. And, you know, it, it's just funny because I feel like cops have always been portrayed as bozos in, in movies. You know, you look at any Hitchcock movie, it's always about like the, the guy who has to take the action to his own hands because the cops are truly ineffective. But this was perhaps one of the first times we really see in cinema the ways that the justice system is not meant to help uh, those without power. Right. This idea of like, oh, and then the police, they just swing into action and the police are there. And it's like the whole point of this movie, I thought, was that like we're watching this character engage in vigilantism because the law doesn't give a shit. Right. And I guess you could make the point that like the law is like famously indifferent to rape, but does kind of get interested around murder. I don't know. You can end up looking better if you solve a murder. The big question here is, I mean, it doesn't spell it out explicitly, but it certainly nods at it implicitly is when they kill this rapist, when they kill Harlan, are we going to get in trouble? Cause like we weren't under imminent threat of mm -hmm. murder, mm -hmm. but it suggests that if you're under imminent threat of rape, mm -hmm. it's fine. It's like, look, it's not worth taking someone's life. And it's like, well, yeah, like in an Aristotelian setting, I guess it's not. But like if it's happening to you, I don't think you can say that. And fascinatingly, to the point of what Jolie was saying earlier about how prevalent or not prevalent any particularly white media had mm -hmm. been at this point about being skeptical of like what police response would be. I could think of like any one of my friend's moms in 1991 being like call the police they're going to do the right thing like for the most part like call the police yeah. they're going to do the right thing but like you would need you there in order to have the in order to have the clarity that Louise has you have to have you had to have had the like hands-on experience of being disregarded by the police for very specific reasons in order to have had that vision because again the white experience you know, through today is not just like being gaslit into believing the police are there for you, the police are there for you. Right. For the most part, 
for white men mm-hmm. the, for the most part and 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 by the extension everyone who is in the white man's universe mm-hmm. the police are there for you because because white men created you in order to catch slaves so the police are there for you mm-hmm. but if you're not and suddenly you are a woman who doesn't want to take whatever's what, whatever is coming at you for the negative whatever forms of violence usually coming from men you realize that your interest is not always yeah. aligned uh with with the police but that's something that she had to learn yeah. uh hands-on unfortunately in texas you know when you talk about thelma and louise you can't they obviously can't avoid the conversation of trauma and like what that mm-hmm. does to you but something that kind of occurred to me on this rewatch was perhaps louise was her rape was by a police officer like it is not out mm-hmm. of the realm of possibility because it seems mm-hmm. like a little bit of an outsized reaction that she would want to avoid the entire state of Texas. That's a great point. Hmm. Hmm. And that she would be so quick to be like, we're not going to the police because I mean, whether or not it was a police officer that did it to her, she obviously had trauma related to the police. I mean, you know, when you're in a state of panic and, and fear and you try to talk with someone with authority, oftentimes I've been in this position, you know, luckily not for sexual assault, but in other situations uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, you come off as like the hysterical woman who is freaking out. So even if it wasn't the person who did it to her, it's it's very likely that she ran into some real humiliating trauma traumatic experiences just trying to get you know the cops to believe her yeah well and I, I don't know i don't know any of the women i know in my personal universe who i know have been either sexually assaulted or raped who had a you know they're giving a five-star review of uh, the police in this situation like every time it is it was like insult to injury well and even if something get, does get done then it's like then you're tied to it for like years possibly and like you become an instrument of the state because if if your testimony is deemed necessary to convict someone who the state decides it would like to try to convict then like then you have an unpaid job describing your own trauma yeah forever yeah i want to credit the bechtel test because the bechtel cast excuse me because they they'd brought this up in their conversation and if you want to hear another conversation about this, listen to their conversation. They had remarked, I think this is to the point of like what Jolie was saying about the uh, assault scene in this movie, about often sexual assault is shown or rape is shown in a way that if you squint the right way or if you're unwilling to have accepted the mm-hmm. brutality of the reality of sexual assault could be seen as sexy or could be seen as being inviting. Yes, like in Blade Runner, a Ridley Scott film. <laughs> right, right, right. Or Game of Thrones, where it was like a regular part of also just showcasing skin. Like there's there's all of these there's all these these issues with how it's typically portrayed. The issue of like passing the Bechdel test or not isn't necessarily just like we need representations of women and their experiences. It's that the entirety of the reality of rape and sexual assault gets erased from the public imagination based on the entertainment that's mm-hmm. given to people. And as a result of of decades of that leading up to this movie, it created, it helped to create and foster an environment in popular culture where people still 
publicly and popularly believed that these are things that not ha- that don't happen and if they do happen it was in large part because of inv- invitation of the person who uh, who was raped or assaulted mm-hmm. yeah it, it explains what the popular critical response to this movie which is a bunch of people who've watched you know, thousands of movies in their time, none of which actually portray what really happened, what really happened in these situations are being like, this doesn't happen. And it's like, yeah, you just watched decades worth of movies that don't su- that suggest to you this is an outlying thing. Or if, or if it does happen, it's sexy. Or if it does happen, it was invited. And this movie was just bold enough to be like, no, we're going to be a blockbuster that shows the realities of this situation. Yeah. Something that really struck me was the infantilization of Thelma and the mm-hmm. way that, I mean, she acts like a child. She like puts her, the first thing she does when she gets into the car is she like op- has some candy and puts her feet up on the dashboard. Like she's in this very suspended adolescence. And um, we, when we talk about, you know, how fucked up the patriarchy is, it's like, it really is the patriarchy. It's not, just men because mm-hmm. Louise also falls into that pattern of mm-hmm. um infantilizing her and calling her crazy and like everyone in the whole movie everyone's just calling telling Thelma how crazy she is and mm-hmm. uh so much that uh, she believes it and sort of that is the presence that she exudes out to the world right and you see how she's you see like what her home life is like and it's like uh, like this person we assume that this person has been kept essentially in confinement since she was like probably 17 years old mm-hmm. and i love how we get to watch her step up and actually kind of reveal what is inside her which is that she's like good at committing robberies she's like good at holding men at gunpoint she's kind of a savant <laughs> yeah i am curious i mean about how much of the confused response about how this was feminist came from this comes right at exactly the transition point of second to third wave feminism. Hmm. So, and I'm, I'm curious about how, Hmm. if people were holding this to what they imagined being a feminist standard that was written 20 years, you know, 20 to 25 years beforehand with regard to how it entered the popular imagination. And we're just now entering at this point in the, the very early nineties, a new kind of discussion about what like lived in feminism looks like, uh, how much of that confusion came from that. I mean, there were always second wave feminists, I would argue, who said we should hold men at gunpoint, put cops in the trunks of their cars, kiss our friends and drive (laughs) off a cliff. But they have had a troubled history in the movement. I think Andrea Dworkin had a, a book. Yeah. That. <laughs> and they were like, Andrea, this is so many words. <laughs> Why don't you just call it woman hating? <laughs> oh, my God. Two things I want to make sure we touch on because we could just talk about this forever and I would happily do so. But two things I want to make sure we touch on before ending are the ending, Mm -hmm. what it means that a movie that liberates women has to kill them at the end. Mm -hmm. And two, uh, queerness in this movie, because I imagine if you were a a queer person, particularly a queer woman uh, or not male identifying watching this movie in 1991 mm-hmm. when i can Im- i can remember no popular portrayals of anyone gay in any circumstance uh in popular media everything was coded in one way or another if it was going to be shown two women who have a coming of age story together who have a um 
big kiss. A big kiss. They have an intimacy between them. They have they sort of like an opportunity to grow together without a lot of direct interference by men. And when it does happen, they're able to shoot shoot the men off them. That there was like a lot of creating a physical space in which you could thrive without men being in that space. Mm-hmm. If you go on letter, I was looking at the letterboxed reviews last night and it's just absolutely spammed with comments that are just like, they're lesbians. I don't care. <laughs> like, it's like, I don't care. I don't yeah. care the truth. And I love, I love that. I love that everyone's like, we're, we're, we've taken this. It doesn't matter what the intention was. Oh, yeah. And this is what it is. Well, there's a, so similarly, there's a clip going around right now, uh, on, on TikTok and elsewhere of Rosie O'Donnell talking about being directed in, in a league of their own. And Penny Marshall didn't see her as a lesbian. Mm hmm. And Rosie O'Donnell was like, it's fucking like, so this is so obviously a lesbian. It's like, who it cares is. what Penny Marshall thinks? <laughs> and she, and she talked, you know, she had talked with great love about Penny Marshall, um, but was also just like, we didn't see it in that way. And mm-hmm. it remi- it makes me think, it makes me think of what you're talking about right now. It makes me think of the fact that like, you know, if you even, in- I like have ingest several times on Twitter, talked about how gay the hobbits are mm-hmm. but, and people are like, why, like, why can't they be friends? It's also important to have male friendships. It's like, yes, have that read. If you need that read that like, is like heterosexual male friendships is important, mm-hmm. but seeing your queer self in media that is not overtly queer is also important. Mm-hmm. And there is a thing in a lot of media where there's enough ambiguity between the characters to apply your lived experience on them and that doesn't necessarily negate other people seeing their lived experience in that movie yeah ambiguity means it can be both guities yeah (laughs) (laughs) both left and right guities yeah (laughs) and to go back to the other thing you wanted to bring up the ending where they drive off the cliff the only world the only thing for them uh, left is to kill themselves and there I feel like there's almost this moment between when they make the decision to when they get when they're in midair off the cliff where like time and space just doesn't exist anymore it's just the two of Mm -hmm. them and so to me that moment is like this is all of the feelings put in one so like maybe it's lovers maybe it's best friends maybe it's just this very deep emotional connection, which who's to say that isn't romantic, but Mm -hmm. it's like the only world where that's void of this patriarchal rule is in the, the moments before you are about to die with your bestie by your side. (laughs) And, and I feel like with Thelma and Louise, like this is a movie that asks us to think about like utopia versus representation, I think, because like we want to see examples of like how, women can transcend the impossible bind of like living in a world where like you're not fully alive until you're doing something that makes you incapable of existing in a male dominated society anymore. And I kind of feel like the movie has to end this way because nobody has, or at least had figured out how to like live with their soul intact in such an oppressive environment. Mm. And it's just like the movie is like, yeah, this is just as much as anyone's figured out. Sorry. Society is a crazy and terrifying venture. And to live sanely, you are an outlaw. And to be an outlaw, your time is limited or extremely not yours. <laughs> it's a co- constantly your time and your experience is constantly under attack. In one way. I mean, a teacher that acknowledges a gender pronoun is now an outlaw. Mm-hmm. They're a groomer. We got to put them on Guantanamo. 
Precisely, because they want to steal, because they want to hurt your kids. Mm -hmm. Um, By allowing them to grow um, emotionally past the cage that you have put them in. Congratulations. Yeah. The the one thing I have left to say is, and Sarah, you touched upon it very uh, very early, but we we never came back to it, which is they both look so hot throughout the whole thing. Yes, Especially thank you. When yes, they're in so important. <laughs> and the dirtier they are, the hotter they get. Yeah. It doesn't matter that it's just going to be the two of them. They still want to look hot for each other because it's just like sometimes you just want to look beautiful in a convertible. And that is totally, totally doable. And that is your right. <laughs> and also like, yeah, I'm just speaking about romantic versus friendship love. Like it's kind of a false binary, I think, because the size of the love that you would feel for the person with whom you experienced this kind of freedom and who facilitated this for you and with whom you have gone beyond the world as you've ever known it it's like you can't just be like yeah we're best friends it's like that doesn't really capture it we may like to organize all of our our stuff in 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 tidy little boxes and that can be very helpful but our feelings uh don't work that way who is there a father in this movie presumably someone's a father in this movie or maybe there are no fathers in this movie and maybe we are in kind of a daddyless world actually and maybe that's in, maybe that's intentional yeah. maybe it's intentional that we never see a father in this movie but so there are no fathers in this movie who is the daddy it's got to be louise in my opinion mm-hmm. she's got the more dominating energy enough said <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Mm-hmm. So this is not an assignment of value to the character, but I, I just, again, want to say, first of all, I love, I love anytime I get to see Michael Madsen on screen. I love that the character that was the least bad man was still difficult to like because he has a, a, uh, tantrum, a mantrum as a <laughs> Jolie, Jolie indicated earlier. And still flipped like a hash brown oh, when yeah. the police started talking to him. Yes, 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 yes. I, I just want to say as honorable mention, I wish Michael Madsen were in more movies. That's mm-hmm. just, that's it. And and he should not have to wait for Quentin Tarantino to call him for a for a role in every movie. Someone else should put him in movies. You're, you're bigger than Quinn Toronto. Uh, <laughs> but I, I want to pick Thelma specifically because I just like watching her becoming her journey i also like she's fucking weird yeah like in a way that i really like like she's these these uh, one of the things that's talked about so often sarah you talk a lot about this in in um you're wrong about in in interviews related to that Mm -hmm. about how there's this expectation of inherent likability among uh, victims or survivors Mm -hmm. victims and survivors victims survivors etc and I'm not saying that she's not likable, but like if you put a microphone in front of her for two minutes, I'm sure someone would find a reason based on kind of a weird thing that she said to be like, this person is not trustworthy. And I like that decision of this character. Like Louise has her shit pretty well together and Thelma is kind of like a a weird mess. And I love that. Yeah. And she feels like someone who is never really allowed to grow up and... As a like tall passive person, I really appreciate having another tall passive person depicted in a film. <laughs> and because both of the the girls have been covered up by these great answers, I'm going to say that the daddy is the bicyclist mm. who is just like <laughs> has to be in fantastic health to be like riding a bike through a gigantic desert 
smoking a blunt the whole time. Or I guess, is it? I, whatever. But like smoking. He's our hero. Yeah. Really. He is the hero of the movie. Yeah. He, he might have kids. I would trust him um, with that. But just like smoking and cycling through the desert, just like. What a nice day. That's the daddy. <laughs> All right, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to Jolie Darrow for being with us, for talking about this movie with us. We loved having Jolie on. She's the best. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode. Thank you to Fresh Lush for providing the beats to this episode that uh, make our transitions sound so good. Thank you so much, Lush. Thank you for listening. Thank you if you support via Patreon or you support via Apple Plus, you get those bonus episodes. We appreciate that. Again, you make the whole thing possible. You make it so that we can focus on just doing this and stuff related to this and you pay artists. So what's so bad about that? Oh, thanks to Ethan Satiawan for editing this episode. Our great, great friend, Ethan Satiawan. He's in a band called Corner House. He's in all sorts of musical adventures and endeavors. Uh, He's helping us as this podcast empire grows and we have to edit so many episodes all the friggin' time. So we, Carolyn, Sarah, Miranda, me, we all appreciate your support here, Ethan. Thank you so much for uh, what you've done (laughs) to make this possible. Are you going to the You're Wrong About Live shows in the West Coast? If so, look for us. We'll all be there. I look forward to seeing you. If you are, please come up and say hello. I'll be the six foot five guy. (laughs) (laughs) And Sarah will be the six foot woman. Carolyn will be playing the guitar. You can find her pretty easily too. All right. That's all. We appreciate you. Thanks for everything you do. I hope you have a wonderful day. You are good.